roses turn to scat It's better because of you and that's a fact We're in this together, you and I We're in this together, you and I So, I have steeped you with anticipation uh, yes, steeped me. Yes, like a like a tea bag. I have gonna, steeped no, you. We're not going to use that reference. We're I have steeped you with anticipation about the topic. Do you know how hard you're, you're going to ask the question of the week? But I'm going to ask one first. Do you know how difficult it is to keep something that you're passionate about a secret for seven days? Yes, I do. I don't until now, and it's really hard. I'm like an open book. I just tell people everything. Sure. Sometimes to a fault. But man, I, I like I, I knew it would it would be more fun if it was a surprise. So do you have any guesses at what it could I, be? I, d- I don't, but I will share with you my story of keeping something a secret, and then you'll go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So remember, you know, when you decide you're going to ask someone to marry you, you don't generally tell them until it, you ask them. Sure. And so I had dropped off the plates that I was using for for uh, to ask mom at the restaurant a week before we went. Right. So tell everybody about this, the whole plan. I guess just okay. tell them the whole story. All right. This so, is a good story. <laughs> all right. So uh, my wife and I uh, were dating and uh, I knew literally, I don't know, two weeks into our dating that I wanted to ask her to marry me. I just wasn't sure about the timing because you can't ask someone after you've been dating for two weeks, even though we've known each other for a very, very, very long time. Yes, yeah, You can't ask kids. someone to marry you after. Yes. Right. You can ask someone two weeks into your, into your official relationship. Yeah. yeah it it would have been a little weird. Um, and so... I, I knew that I wanted to ask her and I didn't want to do something that was cliche, but I also wanted to make sure that I did it in a, in a reasonable time frame. Um, and so what I mean by that is a lot of times it's very cliche to ask someone on Christmas or on Valentine's day or something like that. And so I did not want to ask on those dates, but I did have a, an idea in mind. And so one of the things that I, I thought about was what can I do that's unique to asking someone to marry you, but also something that kind of had a little bit of a theme to it or, you know, something that was, that was kind of fun. And so I was uh, asking some friends of mine at the time, you know, Hey, what do you think about this idea? What do you think about that idea? And they said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. So I made some reservations at a place in Stillwater, Minnesota, uh, to have dinner with, uh, my, uh, my soon to be fiance the day after Christmas. So December 26th. And so the week beforehand, I had gone, I had called the, the place, it's called the Lowell Inn, I had called them and said, hey, I have a, an idea of what I want to do for, for an engagement, uh, and so would you guys be willing to participate? And they said, sure, what are you looking to do? Well, um, I had purchased a couple of nice china plates and had hand-painted on there um, a poem and then also a just, will you marry me, Brenda, on it. And so I explained to them what I wanted to do, and that was to drop them off there and have dinner served on those plates. And so they said, sure, we can certainly do that. And the, part of the reason was that the Lowland was a, was a pretty decent, you know, nice place. 
And they also had a lot of things that were painted on porcelain. So their their menu was actually painted porcelain. And the plates that they bring out all had pictures and things like that on them. So it really fit the theme of what I wanted to do. Sure. But So I dropped the plates off a week ahead of time. And and just like we were talking about, um, you know, I had to wait a week to, to do this. And, in, you know, in, in your head, when you're thinking you're going to ask someone to marry you, you, you know, you... You're probably not going to ask unless you have a pretty good idea that they're going to say yes, but it's right. still very nerve-wracking. Right. And with a plan like this, I was super, super excited about about doing this, but I also had to wait and wait and wait. And 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 um, so the day before uh, was Christmas, and we had gotten together at Grandma and Grandpa Tennis's place with uh, their whole family and uh, all of Grandma Tennis's uh, family, and there's like 40 people there. And Brent and I had been dating for like six months or so. Uh, and the question I got all day long was, when are you guys going to get engaged? When are you guys going to get engaged? And in my head, I'm like, well, hopefully tomorrow. But I can't say anything, right? right. And so, right. so I, I just literally just bit my tongue. So the next day, we start driving to the restaurant. And so we lived in, in uh, Minneapolis and still, Stillwater's, I don't know, 30, 35 miles away, so 40 yeah. minutes. And I'm driving there, and the whole time I'm nervous because I've got this ring that's inside of a case, and it's inside my suit pocket. And I'm afraid that, you know, like, there's, is there, can you see the bulge? You know, am I going to do something stupid? Yeah. I'm going to drop the ring, all that kind of weird stuff. So we get to the restaurant. We sit down, and they put the menu in front of us. I'm like, yes, this is perfect, the menu. And so I commented. I said, well, this is kind of a cool place. They've got, you know, painted on menus. And, and your mom's like, yeah, this is this is kind of cool. It's kind of slick. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm nervous. So you know me, I typically don't have a problem talking and I'm not really we have saying a whole a lot. podcast based okay. around that concept of, of, of both of us. Yes. Of both of us not so, having a problem talking. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm nervous. And so I'm not really saying a whole lot of kind of, you know, in my head, I'm like, okay, I hope this thing works. Did they, are they going to put the plates on? The yeah. Right are they going to bring them to the right couple, all that stuff, yeah. <laughs> you know, just, all the, all that stuff. And mm-hmm. are they going to bring them at the right course? You know, and so I look at the menu, and I had checked the menu out ahead of time. And uh, I don't really eat pork very often. I eat bacon, but other than that, I don't eat pork at all. And so uh, they had changed the menu. And the only thing that I could eat or even order on the menu, because they had fish on the menu, and they had ham on the menu. And so I couldn't order fish because I'm deathly allergic to fish. And then ham, I'm like, oh, this is bad. And so I had to order the ham. And your mom's looking at me like, why are you ordering ham? I can't. I'm like, well, I can't order fish. She's like, we should have just gone to a different place. And then you're just your your heart's starting to sink. You're like, this is not going well. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so I'm like, ah. And and so I said, you know what? They have a bunch of sides that they bring. So I'll just order a bunch of sides. So they they bring the salad, and the salad's got you know a nice little painted photo on the or painted photo. Jesus. A, a painting on the plates. And so I comment on that to your mom. She's like, yeah, that's kind of nice. Right. You know, you're, you're trying to get her to be invested in in the plates so that when the time absolutely. comes, she will yes. naturally look. Yes, exactly. And and she's, she, you can tell she's, she's not buying into it. it. She's like, no, she's I like, don't give a fuck about the plates. <laughs> exactly. She's like, okay, that's great. So then, then the, you know, the, the entree comes and mine has got a, big slice of ham on there sure. and it's got some some mashed potatoes on the side and it it's kind of got some stuff on there and i and i said oh yeah i'll take this side this that side that side 
and that kind of stuff because I wanted to make sure that it covered things. And I had, I don't know, I had peas and carrots and beans. And I mean, I had every side you could have on my plate. And, and I, the, the whole reason for that was, you know, I, I wasn't going to eat the ham. So we're sitting there talking, and, and I'm trying to figure out when to, to say this. So I, I'm kind of hinting at mom, like, wow, these plates are kind of neat, aren't they? They're a little different than the other plates. And she's like, what is the deal with the plates today? Why are you commenting on the dish? I don't really care, you know? And, and of course, my, again, my heart's sinking. And she's eating really slowly, and I'm, I'm eating super slow because I don't want things to be uncovered because on my plate is the key one. Mine says, will you marry me, Brenda, on it. On hers is the poem. And okay. so I start pointing out on her plate. I said, oh, that looks like there's maybe a poem on, on that plate. So that's a little bit different than the previous ones. And she's like, yeah, I don't know. It's something about love. I'm not sure. And, and that was as much as she was going to say about it. Sure. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do here? So I said, hey, let me, you know, let me see if I can read what's on there. And she's like, Brian, I don't really care what's on this plate. I don't really care about the poem on here. I don't know why you're being so weird about this. And she's like, I, I can't really read it. And I don't really care to read it. And of course, I'm just like, hmm, this is going just spectacularly. So I punt. I'm like, you know what? At this point, whatever. So I take my plate and it's got all of this food on it. And I scrape all of the food onto my, my uh, like a bread plate. They have those tiny little bread plates. I scrape all of my food onto that, just piled on there. And you could see your mom's face like, what are you doing? And so I lift up the plate and I turn it and I said, can you read this? And she looks at it and her eyes are like, oh, first of all, it's like, <laughs> what? like, well, why are you asking? Oh, what? what? You know? And then she just, then she started to cry. And, and then she's then, of course, she, now she wants to read the poem on the other on the other plate. I, and, I, and I said, whoa, 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 hey, hold on, like, hold on. whoa, 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 like, hold we're on, past please. that point at this. I, I, yeah, exactly. I'm like. I need it. I, you know, I'm looking for an answer here. You know, can you read this? Number one, will you marry me, Brenda? And I, I verbalized it. And she just sat there like in stunned silence and crying. And I was like, not good. Um, <laughs> I'm like, is, is this a yes a or a no? A good cry or a bad cry? Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, and you're just like, and I, and I had fumbled the ring out of my, my, you know, out of my pocket. I had it in my hands, but I fumbled it, meaning like it was like my hands were shaking. Sure. Right? And so I opened the ring up and she looks at it and she still hasn't said anything. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> and, and then finally she's like, yes, yes. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, you know, obviously this is the only time I'm going to ask you this, but don't do that to me again. Oh man. That's so <laughs> So funny. then, then of course she was, she's like, was there stuff on other plates too? I'm like, no, this, no. these are the only two plates. So anyway, it was, it was very cool. It was fun. Uh, we used those plates at our wedding uh, uh, for our meal and we had them on display for many, many years in our house. Um, it's, it's, it's a fun story and it's, you know, it's one of those things that I think is, is pretty unique. You know, you, people do a lot of fun stuff when they get engaged, but I didn't want to do something that was cliche. Number one, number two, I didn't want to do something that, um, that was just, you know, standard either. And then the best part is that we start driving home. And of course this is, you know, 1993 and there's no cell phones, right? You can't call and say, Hey, we just got engaged. So we're driving. And so no one knows this is happening. And so we drive back and we go to our parents' house, both sets of our parents, and, and we have photos. And I, I think you've seen the photos of, of us. And if you look at us, you know, we're white as sheets. And it's not only because it's the middle of winter in Minnesota and we haven't seen the sun for months. It's because we were, it was just such a, 
kind of an emotional type situation. And so uh, it was fun. It, it, everyone was totally surprised. And then they really realized, oh, you did have a plan for when you were going to get engaged. And, and so, I don't know, it was fun. It was a good time. Nice. Well, what a great heartwarming story to open up our feature story which um, originally for this episode, I thought I would do an informative summary of the history of Boston, but then I felt kind of icky for assuming I could summarize the entirety of one of the most you know, historical American cities. So I decided to do something less icky and focus <laughs> only on the history of Boston's red light district. Aha, interesting. So we'll be taking yours and mom's engagement story and squishing that at the front end of the research I've done on all of the prostitutes and whores and where they lived for the past 150 years in Boston. Oh, oh that's, that's, that's perfect. Actually, so here's the story. I was sitting on a bench along Commonwealth Avenue, which is this like gorgeous greenway. I don't know if you remember it. Do you? No, I don't. Uh, okay, so it, it's um it's a street with a bunch of brownstones on it, and there's like a greenway in the middle that that pedestrians can walk on, and it runs from the Boston Common uh, to the Fenway neighborhood. Okay, and, yeah. And the, it it's like the center of the Back Bay neighborhood. Okay. So I was sitting on one of those benches after work, reading the Lenny Bruce autobiography that I had started reading after finishing The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, as I talked about last week. Right. And in that autobiography, Bruce briefly, briefly kind of like recollects a story of being at the Silver Dollar Bar in Boston and seducing okay. a woman there. Uh, it's worth noting that the autobiography <laughs> was first published as a serial in Playboy. Um, oh, that's funny. I did not yeah, know that. Yeah, so there's <laughs> some descriptive scenes throughout, uh, I think, I to entertain the viewers or readers, whatever you want to call them. Um, they, hey, they were only getting Playboy for the article, so it was, I'm certain for the readers. Right. Yes, so he makes mention of this silver silver dollar in the autobiography, and I assumed it you know, to be a club or a bar where uh, he may have performed right? So I wanted to sure. know where it is or was, and if it it's still a bar, then I was going to go there and have a drink while I continued to read the autobiography. So I Googled oh, yeah. it, and um, it no longer exists, but I was still curious where it was. So sure. I, I click on a link called The Rum Saturated Silver Dollar Bar, which is published on a, a personal blog of a man named Richard Vaca, who writes about niche historical aspects of Boston. And the silver okay. dollar. Sounds interesting. Yes, the silver dollar was the focus of one of these articles. And sure. on it, he listed the address of the silver dollar as 642 Washington Avenue. Okay. Which made my ears perk up, or whatever the equivalent visual metaphor of that is. Um, because where I live is on Boylston Street, in between Tremont right. Street and, you guessed it, Washington Avenue. Yes. So on the Tremont corner, of, of where I live is the Boylston subway stop. On the Washington corner is the Chinatown subway stop because uh, I live on the northwest corner of Chinatown and the east side of the theater district. But because these subway stops are there, I have occasion not only to know my own address, but the addresses of the, the two streets that I lie between. And sure, on, that makes sense. 
On Washington Avenue, I happen to know that the Chinatown stop is the 600 block of Washington Avenue. Oh, funny. Which means that Lenny Bruce seduced a woman less than 100 yards from where I sleep. It's kind of <laughs> kind of cool. But why, of all places, I wondered, would Lenny seduce a woman there? Because what I can relate from my own life, there's little to no seduction occurring in these parts today. <laughs> so I kept reading the blog post, and I found out that I live in a neighborhood that was known for 40 years as the Combat Zone. And yes, <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard of the Combat Zone. Yes, it was Boston's official red light district. Yes. And that's where I live. And so then I wondered, why why was it there? Why is it not there now? And so I present to you, not the history of Boston, but the history of Boston's red light district. I'm super interested about this because one of the things when I was younger, and I don't even know the age I was, maybe high school, maybe early uh, freshman year, I remember hearing stories about people who had gone out to Boston at some point in time and they, you know, there's the, the, you know, the combat zone. That was the thing. So I'm going to be curious to hear the, the timing of all of this and when it got cleaned up because it certainly in my mind uh, existed when I was about your age or was cleaned up right around that same time. So super curious about this. Yes. So we'll get to the combat zone and, and that's the sexiest sounding one. But the first red light district in Boston dated back to the late 18th century. Uh, it's called Anne Street. The street name itself okay. was uh, dedicated to Queen Anne, who, seeing as it turned out being the red light district, I'm guessing would not have been flattered by the tribute. No. It also had a nickname, the Black Sea, and it, it actually served as one of the first non-segregated neighborhoods in Boston. So, okay. so it's, it's good to note uh, a lot of the times the red light districts of of towns are also places where the lgbt community and the black community who have been historically repressed in america have found some form of uh acceptance because there was sure. uh less of a police presence in these areas right? right and on the black sea um massachusetts had abolished slavery in 1783 before the us constitution was even ratified um okay. but much like all of the abolitionist states, uh, abolitionists were generally kind of well-to-do and had more of a not-in-my-backyard mentality where they would right. condemn slavery, but they were far from accepting black citizens as equals. So right. Ann Street is part of the North End, which is uh, the now Little Italy, right? It's yes. It was historically known as the Third Ward, which is kind of funny because it's the neighborhood where... Italian immigrants settled here and also where they settled in Milwaukee. That's also called the Third Ward, right? Yes. So they were settling back there back when they were a hated ethnicity uh, similar to black people, and there was a lot of commingling there. And um, and now the footprint of it is just all of Boston's Little Italy, and it's very um, gentrified. But back then, immigrants and brothels landed there because they literally landed there. The the North End is uh, adjacent to Boston's Inner Harbor, where immigrant yes. boats would arrive at uh, what was called Dock Square. And okay. who else would land there besides immigrants but young seamen of the American Navy? And if there's ah. anything we know about the American Navy, it's that it's full of depraved sex fiends, right? 
<laughs> Just watch the last detail movie, which should be on your list, and you will see that. Right. So um, because of that unique mix of, of low-income immigrants, um, discriminated against African-Americans, and uh, Navy men with nothing to do. Uh, and money. And money. There was a seedier element that developed along that street. Uh, but there were also good forces that came out to kind of counteract it and distract the um, the seamen from their seamen. And one such a oh. good element was Edward Thompson Taylor, who was a Methodist preacher at the Seamen's Bethel Church on Ann Street. It was constructed in 1829. It still stands there today. It's called. Is the, it still the same name? It's called the Sacred Heart Church now, not the Siemens okay. Bethel Church, which is okay. good. It's less of a mouthful. It's actually run by different people, not Methodists. Um, gotcha. I went to check it out. And what's funny is, I from my internet research, quite a few people stopped through Edward Thompson Taylor's church, uh, famous people, but I saw no sign on it kind of identifying its historical significance um, and the and the people who kind of went there to see him preach. So, for example, Herman Melville, he was born and he died in wow. New York, uh, but he actually came from a, pros- uh, a prominent, I almost said prostitute. Uh, <laughs> it's like, whoa! Yeah, I got Freudian slips here. Uh, from a prominent Massachusetts family, and his grandfather, um, Thomas Melville, actually took part in the Boston Tea Party. Kind of fun. Wow. Herman himself happened to be one of those raunchy seamen who occupied Ann Street for a time. Uh, He joined the Navy in the fall of 1843, near the peak of Ann Street's existence. Uh, He was a seaman on the frigate USS United States, which is a kind of redundant title. I was just going to say it's kind of uh, a mouthful itself. Yes. Um, And during that next year, he was in the Navy. He got to visit a bunch of islands, including like Tahiti, Valparaiso. Uh, And then from the summer to fall of 1844, he was in Mazatlan, Lima. He stopped in Rio de Janeiro. Uh, And then he actually landed in Boston on October 3rd. And uh, that's when he got discharged, and he went to Edward Thompson Taylor's church there on Ann Street and ended up basing a Moby Dick character, Father Mapple, uh, on him and his, his preaching style. Wow. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson was also a fan, which meant that he spent some time on Ann Street. Uh, he has wow. a, a quote referring to how how good of a preacher Edward Thompson Taylor was, how puny, how cowardly other preachers look by the side of this preaching. He shows us what a man can do, is the quote. Wow. Walt Whitman said of this preacher, I have never heard but one essentially perfect orator. Again, all these men were on Ann Street, I'm sure, just for the preaching. Uh, That's it. There's no, no other reason. In 1842, Charles Dickens visited Boston, and he also uh, reportedly went to Siemens Bethel to hear Taylor preach. So um, good forces, what, is, is there, a lot is, of literary tr- figures. I was going to say, is there any truth to the knowledge that any of the characters from some of his uh, Charles Dickens stories uh, were based on some characters uh, on Ann Street? Um, not that I was able to find. I did look around, but, um, all, right. all, all I can find is that there was a record of him going to the church. So, all right. 
Um, so, you know, it's important to note, I guess, from all of that, that maybe not everything happening on Ann Street was seedy. Um, and a lot of times red light districts can be a little bit of a mixture of, um, of both clean and, and dirty forms of business, however you want to refer to them. Uh, lewd, well, I mean, not lewd. I, I think that that's maybe a perfect spot for a church when you think about what the, the job of, of the church is in theory, right? Right. In theory, if you're a preacher, you're looking to save lost souls. So that's maybe the, the quote unquote best spot for a church to exist. Yes. Uh, I mean, not only for the fact that it was in a red light district, um, but also for the fact that uh, it was right next to, to the docks. So, I mean, it, sure. it made sense. He was obviously targeting the Navy men who were wandering up and down the street. He had the same audience as the brothels, right? Right. Um, exactly. And in 1851, so, um, you know, he, he'd been there for 20 years, but in 1851, Ann Street had kind of reached a uh, fame of national proportions as the Navy went around telling people that uh, they really had something going up on Ann Street in Boston, uh, <laughs> which pressured the the government um, to use their local police force to start uh, conducting raids. Um, and in 1851, they were working on conducting raids, but first they wanted to take tally of all of the illegal businesses that were operating there. And they came up with a tally of, on a on a road that is a little over a mile long, 227 brothels. Oh my gosh. 26 gambling dens and 1,500 establishments that sold liquor. So... So, okay, that's in, you said it's a mile and it's 15. It's a little over a mile long, but you, it, you know, it would bleed into the neighborhood, right? So, right, but that's a lot of it's a I lot. I don't even know how you could have that many businesses. There, there obviously had to be overlap, overlap, right? Where a brothel was also selling liquor that was also maybe doing gambling, probably. Yeah, I, I would say that establishments that sold liquor would include those 227 brothels and 26 gambling tents. Holy buckets, and wow. I mean, um. You know who knows how how efficacious the tallies were, right? So maybe they the problem was over exaggerated, maybe not. But that's the tally that the policeman came up with. Um, one such brothel owner uh, was it is only referred to today as Mrs. Lake. We don't know her name. Her identity identity was discovered through artifacts that were uncovered during the Big Dig in 1990. Do you know the Big Dig? Oh, I do, Jordan. I'm familiar with the Big Dig. The Big Dig, for those who don't know it, uh, is one of the, I think, maybe the most expensive highway rerouting project in U.S. history, uh, where they took a surface-level six-lane highway that ran through um, the east side of Boston, the neighborhood in question, including Ann Street, and they put it all in a tunnel. And as they were doing the excavating, before they would lay down the the new road, um, they would categorize the artifacts they found. So they found a lot of native artifacts, and they found a lot of artifacts from uh, the 18th and 19th century people who lived there. Um, and they had a archaeological program, but they only had the funding to investigate anything that they found that they could date before 1830. And Mrs. Lake's... Uh, findings were estimated to be around 1850 so they got sure. put in a box 
and hid away for 20 years until in 2011, uh, a researcher um, at a local university actually asked if they could start looking at the findings free of charge and conduct their archaeological studies. And they found out that Mrs. Lake was a brothel owner. They found a collection of her belongings, uh, and they were able to determine from documents, city documents, after finding her belongings, that she ran what uh, she referred to as a parlor house um, on Endicott Street, which is an offshoot of Ann Street. Uh, And it was located there from 1852 to 1883. Wow. And in addition to um, having a brothel there, there were also some residences. And city records from 1867 show that a policeman actually lived at Mrs. Lake's property while it was operating as a brothel. He lived there. That was his residence. He was just, you know, he's just security. Right. Um, So I think that gets to the heart of how any red light district exists is police kind of looking the other way. Um, So prostitution was certainly already illegal by the time that that policeman was living there. Uh, But Uh, yes, but uh, Ann Street persisted because of a, a lack of willingness of people to go in and kind of clean it up. Um, you know, and wh- wherever you stand on, you know, sex work positive, sex work negative, uh, spectrum, there was clearly a lot of, uh, issues, uh, human rights violations that are kind of associated with these red light districts. So, uh, it is good to clean them up when possible, but it's also a difficult task. Um, Another fun thing that they found were um, syringes. Mrs. Lake was married to a homeopathic doctor, and uh, it looked like he was experimenting with uh, medications to help prevent um, STDs. Sure, syphilis, things like that. Exactly. Yeah, so there was a lot of medical innovation happening on Ann Street as well. Good things, bad things, (laughs) other things. Medical innovation. Yes, Yes. medical innovation. Right. Um. But the Boston government, you know, they had enough. They were organizing raids. Um, So that started in 1851, as I mentioned. And in their first raid, they nabbed 86 gamblers. They they did a second raid two weeks later. And um, it's referred to in the history books as the Great Descent. Uh, And here's a quote from one of the officers, uh, one of the 100 officers who helped with the raid. 100 police officers descended on Ann Street. On the eve of the 23rd of April this year, we made the great police descent in Ann Street, capturing some 160 bipeds, that's people, who were punished okay. who were who were punished for, here's the list of things that they were doing on Ann Street. Piping, fiddling, dancing, drinking, and attending crimes. So not only were there brothels, but there was fiddling and piping as well. And Which, dancing. What, that's illegal? All uh, of that stuff's illegal? Uh, well, 160 bipeds were were arrested for it or captured for it, so I guess it must have been. I didn't do an in-depth look at the, um, at the laws regarding piping, fiddling, and dancing, uh, but I can assume from... <laughs> From Edward Savage's account, Officer Edward Savage's account, that um, that even if it wasn't illegal, it was something you could get arrested for. So, the raid, as I said, it it met, it included a hundred people, uh, and they ended up arresting sixty men, 
including 35 brothel keepers and 95 women who were mostly prostitutes. Okay, sure. And pipers and fiddlers. <laughs> pipers and, and 10 drummers drumming and... Yes. Um, however, raids like this, uh, they didn't really, you know, they didn't shut everything down. It was more of a containment measure than it was an elimination measure. Sure. Um, and, and so when they were finding out that the raids weren't working, they decided instead to change the street name. Uh, to North oh, because Street. Because that will solve the problem, right? In 1852. Yeah, I feel like that really captures the essence of the American government. Um, you know, <laughs> the idiom that's been around for years. If at first you don't succeed, change the name of the street so the public doesn't know what street the newspapers are referencing, right? <laughs> it's a tale as old as time. Uh, <laughs> so you said they changed it to North Street? I'm North sorry, Street, yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And it's still there today, North Street. Um, that's where the Sacred Heart Church is. I didn't sure. find any brothels when I took a walk down it. Um, but that's okay. Uh, so, so did you see any, did you see any <laughs> pipers or fiddler? I did not see a piper, a fiddler I'm trying to Dancers? think if I saw anybody dancing. I don't think so. Uh, most of right. the, the, the piping, fiddling and dancing in the North end happens on, uh, Hanover street now. Sure. Sure. And all the other stuff happens somewhere else. Um, well, the government the government got their job done. They cleaned up North Street. Yeah, in a way they did. Uh, I guess changing the name worked. Um, but I'm not sure if it was the name because, you know, in the early to mid-19th century, something else was happening in Boston, um, sure. so something big. And that is they began filling in parts of the surrounding bay to create right. more livable land out of what was once, you know, a pretty narrow peninsula. Um, and one such neighborhood they created was Back Bay, which was yes. filled in by the Boston Mill Corporation after years of polluting the bay. And um, that's where I now go to sit and read my Lenny Bruce autobiography. But another area they filled in was Dock Square. Okay. Uh, because in addition to the licentious red light district that was just to the north of the docks, um, a mercantile district had formed around Faneuil Hall to the west. Oh, sure. And that still stands there today. Hall. Yes, that's yep. um, along the Freedom Trail, a very popular stop for anybody who comes to Boston. Um, but you gotta you gotta let commerce boom in America. So more merchants wanted to build and host shops in that neighborhood that was fast becoming kind of downtown Boston, and that meant when they filled it in, uh, the Navy traffic was rerouted to the Charlestown Navy Yard on the other side of the harbor, which made oh. Ann Street a harder place to get to. Much much harder, yes. And um. You know, it's it's all about it's all about where the navy's at. Where the navy yeah. is, the prostitutes are, right? That's easy access, baby. That's the way it goes, right? So on the other end of Ann Street, or as we'll call it now, North Street, um, you know, not the side with the Boston Harbor, but the center end of it, because um, everything in Boston kind of shoots out from the center as like a hub and spoke system it's not really sure. a grid system but it is kind of a wheel of of major streets and where that converges um it converges with two other streets that have run through the middle of boston since before it underwent any terraforming at all those streets are called tremont and washington street ah yes yes so this convergence is about 0.3 miles north of where i live now and most major roads in Boston lead to that convergence. Most of them still do. 
um, because of that spoke system. And uh, at that convergence of Ann Street, Tremont, and Washington, there's a small town square referred to by the name of Scully Square, which which had been there since the roads had formed, right? Um, And that made it one of the oldest neighborhoods in Boston. Okay. And as Boston overall grew by filling in things like Back Bay, Dock Square, and the neighborhood formerly known as Bullfinch's Triangle, where the Boston Garden now sits, um, Scully became the absolute central neighborhood of Boston. Just east of it was that Commerce District with Faneuil Hall. Northeast was the North End. Directly north is that what we now call the West End. Uh, and, most importantly, the bridge to the Charlestown Navy Yard. Um, and then to the west is Beacon Hill, and to the south is downtown, right? Um, so there was a lot of drive to build commerce in this square. Um, and where commerce goes, preachers go. And in 1843, an Adventist religious sect called the Millerites built what Millerites. what became the crown jewel of Scully Square, which is now known as the Old Howard Theater. But okay. before then, it was the Millerite Temple. Have you ever heard of the Millerites? I have not. I would have assumed that they started in Milwaukee. Yes, that would be a good guess, but you're wrong. <laughs> the, the primary message of the Millerites... Um, who built their temple in 1843, was that the world would end in 1844. (laughs) Perfect. Right. And in 1845, the building was sold. But I want to delve a little bit into William Miller, uh, because it is an interesting story. So he's a War of 1812 vet. um, And he actually raised a company of men in Vermont. And they... Uh, overcame the British in the Battle of Plattsburgh. Um, And he saw a number of wartime horrors. And as many do when they come back from that kind of trauma, he was trying to make sense of uh, the meaning of life and how all of that fit into his understanding of the world. Sure, that makes Uh, sense. um, So he first tried being a deist, which we kind of know as um, agnosticism these days, where you believe that there is some supernatural power, um, but you aren't confident to say what that is. Sure. Um, But in the town that he lived, the primary religion was was the Baptist uh, sect, and... um, so he started attending a Baptist church and and really connected with it. And his deist friends um, were not convinced, and they wanted him to prove uh, that the Bible was more true than just believing in a more nebulous, agnostic kind of God. And so he started studying Scripture, and he came across this verse, Daniel 8.14, uh, which reads, Unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Oh, yes. And he assumed that the cleansing of the sanctuary represented the uh, second coming of Jesus. So then uh, he wanted to mathematically prove that when the second coming of Jesus was going to be for his friends, uh, and even though it said 2,300 days— uh, he interpreted days as years because a day in prophecy is a calendar year, according to 
to William Miller. I'm not sure where he derived that math, but he did. Neither am I. Um, and so then he also uh, decided that the 2300-year period started in 457 BC with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem um, by the the king of Persia at the time. Yes. And so then when you calculate that out, it meant that the world would end in 1843. He decided to found a a religious sect based on this concept, and he went to his dozens of supporters who became hundreds, um, because that's kind of how it works when you say the apocalypse is coming. You pick certain people who want to believe it up, and and the rest of the people you leave behind, right? Um, Yeah. And so they were. They kept pushing him for a specific date for the second advent, um, but he he wasn't willing to do that. Uh, instead, he decided to narrow down the time period sometime in the Jewish year, uh, so March twenty first, eighteen forty three, to March twenty first, eighteen forty four, and then they built the temple, and uh, and worshipped there. But then in March twenty first, eighteen forty four. It, it passed without incident, and that became known in Boston and nationally as the Great Disappointment. Um, well, I bet they were disappointed. They, I'm sure they racked up a bunch of bills that they now had to pay. They did, because it really became a phenomenon this year when they were claiming that the world would end uh, by March 21st. Um, so they had estimated tens of thousands of Millerites by that time all throughout the nation. And most of them abandoned their beliefs when that date passed. Um, Some of them... them. Some of them believed that the date was wrong, but the prophecy was correct, so they kept waiting. Uh, Some believed that the date was right and the prophecy was right. Um, And... They ended up becoming shakers, and they felt that they were living past the the end of the world in the post-apocalyptic sure. era. Uh, but most importantly, a couple dozen decided that the date was valid, but the interpretation of what was going to happen was invalid. And these oh. people became what we call Seventh-day Adventists. Ah, interesting. Yes. I did not know that. And today, there's 18.7 million Seventh-day Adventists. And it all roots back to one little temple, the Old Howard Theater. Wow. Now I'm excited to see that place um, when we visit you in Boston. Uh, Unfortunately, you can't, and we'll get to that. Um, I'm excited to pretend to have seen that place. Yes. Right. So in 1845, when, when they lost all their members and racked up the huge bills for the end of the world that never came, uh, most people sold their worldly possessions. <laughs> of course, yeah. Uh, then Miller uh, sold the building to a company who wanted to renovate and reopen the temple as a play theater. Uh, sure. But they had a hard time attracting away the major productions from the Boston Museum, uh, who was hosting them at the time. Uh, so they began hosting vaudeville and minstrel shows, which were very vogue at the time. Uh, Pipers and fiddlers to be seen everywhere. Exactly, yes. Uh, But they finally did break into the theater scene. In fact, by 1960, or sorry, not 1960, 1860, they were headlining a production of Hamlet, anchored by a young man named Mr. John Wilkes Booth as Hamlet. Oh, wow. 
very successful run. Um, unfortunately, the the theater didn't work out. Um, Mr. Wilkes Booth ended up uh, not working out also. Um, <laughs> he took a different path. Right. And uh, aided by the 1897 opening of the subway, um, with the starting with the Tremont Street line, right? So the Park Station... Uh, Park Street Station is the very first subway to have ever opened in Boston in, in 1897, where I catch the red line to head to Quincy every day for work, right. um, even to this day. Uh, and it's actually where the developers of the Howard Theater quarried the granite for their building. Kind of fun. Quincy, not yeah. the Park Street Station. Um, they opened a stop at Scully Square near the Howard Theater in 1898. Uh, which made the Scully Square stop the fourth subway stop in the history of Boston. Um, okay. But by the time it opened, the continued crackdown of Ann Street um, and the rerouting of the sailors uh, to a bridge that led directly to Scully Square, um, that central location, and the fact that the neighborhood as a whole was aging, the Millerites had evacuated, um, and the Howard Theater's uh, play productions had not gone up. <laughs> To a great start. Um, Sounds like they did not. They wanted to uh, capture the attention of that sailor crowd who was more interested in a different kind of show. Uh, burlesque shows, to be specific. And just like sure. that, um, the nature of the square changed entirely. And as Ann Street got kind of cleaned up, Scully Square got kind of dirtied, right? And the second red light district of Boston was born. So Massachusetts, colonized by Puritans, um, famed Plymouth Rock is only 40 minutes south of here uh, on a good traffic day, right? And the temperance movement was never really out of style here. Uh, And the Boston Police Department actually had a division referred to as the Vice Squad, uh, who were wholly dedicated to eliminating the indecency and obscenity in both word and deed throughout Boston. That was their... Hence vice. Yes, those are yes. vices. Those, that was the vice squad's role. Um, but just as, you know, Ann Street's brothels had kind of resisted a, a true police crackdown for, geez, decades, um, the burlesque and booze scene in Scully Square kind of only intensified in the face of the temperance movement that caught fire nationally uh, in in the Roaring Twenties, you know, that Prohibition era. Yes. Um, and in fact, the police seemed to occupy Scully Square without much worry, even though there were plenty of prostitutes. Uh, in fact, they hosted their famed 1919 police strike, police union strike in Scully Square. Um, Perfect place. Yes. So the sailors were there, the police were there, everybody was there. Uh, and by 1950... The neighborhood was basically centuries old. It was completely deteriorated, um, and it had been uh, getting worse in terms of, uh, you know, just both the general crumbling of infrastructure and the the type of clientele that it attracted for a hundred years now. Right. Right. Um, you don't develop in in neighborhoods like that, so it was really, really falling apart. Um, and it had that concentration of burlesque and booze and prostitutes, um, still all rooted in the old Howard, which was by 1950s still the crown jewel, uh, still hosting the burlesque shows. And in 1953, the Vice Squad 
um, was actually able to gain what I would call a more decisive victory than they ever had with Ann Street. Um, they were able to sneak a relatively new invention into the old Howard Theater called a 16-millimeter video camera. Oh, that's funny. And they were able to capture the performance of one Irma the Body on camera. <laughs> Sounds like a wrestler. Yes, yeah, so I was curious about the name too, so I looked up Irma the Body. Um, her real name is Mary Elizabeth Goodneighbor. Uh, which is not a stripper's name. Uh, not, not at all. She actually started her career as a chorus dancer, but while the the stripper was on the main stage, the audience would be booing the stripper and cheer for Irma in the background. Um, and the stripper got angry and ended up turning the show over to her at, at one state fair um, show that they were performing at. And... Uh, she developed a career off of that being her very first performance. She ended up wow. winning two awards uh, for her stripping, Miss Guaranteed All-Woman and Miss Heavy Armored Maintenance. Uh, she passed away at 66 in 1997. Those are all the facts wow. I was able to gather on Arm of the Body. That's Those are some good facts. Yes. Um, so... They had a videotape of her performing her act on stage, and they took him to court. They sued the owners of the Old Howard Theater, not Irma herself, uh, for indecency. It became a huge national um, case. They won the case, uh, and the city kind of revoked the cabaret license that the theater needed to continue its operation, which meant the crown jewel closed. Um, but the, the puritanical government was not happy with that, that was not enough. They wanted to to clear out the neighborhood entirely. So they took um, it a step further with the popular concept of the 1960s, urban renewal. Oh, yes. Yes. So this led to many cities, um, ones that I've been to being Boston, Chicago, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, caused them all to raise uh, some of their most historic properties to the ground in favor of what I consider to be some of the shittiest architecture in the history of America. Um, and in Boston, <laughs> this urban renewal plan included flattening, um, the two low income neighborhoods of central Boston being the West end, uh, which was replaced with the Massachusetts general hospital and some of the most characterless and ratty housing high rises <laughs> in the city today. And the other neighborhood they flattened entirely was scully square which they replaced oh, sure. with a sprawling complex of government buildings that is now referred to as government center oh perfect so most of these buildings are designed and built with the architectural style known as brutalist architecture you can't miss it it's absolutely a, named it's a fancy way of saying entirely concrete and terrible um and Dad, another brutalist building you'll probably recall during the urban renewal period is the Milwaukee Post Office. Oh, yes. I hate that building. Yep. Uh, that's brutalist architecture. That's what the center of Boston looks like. There's a, uh, they, they flattened 1,000 buildings and built like 17 of the ugliest federal and city concrete messes that I've ever seen. Um, and just like that, Scully Square was gone. People were allowed to come and take whatever of the materials that they tore down as long as they could take a full dump truck's worth. Uh, and all of that um, quarried 
uh, granite and marble that they used to build the the um, old Howard ended up getting repurposed to other things. Wow. I mean, but, the good news is that good news is that they haven't changed too much. There was a bunch of uh, illegal activities going on previous to this, and now that's where the government sits. Right. Exactly. Yes. Good one, Dad. <laughs> um, you know, so Scully Square, that that subway stop, still exists today. It goes by the name Government Center. But I, um, before I even did any research on this, I happened to notice. Um, if you look real closely as you traverse the stairs to access the Blue Line train at Government Center, uh, there's a mosaic sign on the wall as is standard in Amer- American subway stations. Absolutely. And that mosaic sign does not read Government Center. It actually reads Scully Square. Wow. So it's kind of the last true relic of the bygone era, and that, that mosaic's probably been up there since 1897. Um, wow. So, yeah, when you guys come to town, you'll take the blue line uh, from the airport and you'll go up the stairs to leave the subway station and you'll see it there. And people walk by it every day and they don't have any idea that Scully Square ever existed. All they know is Government Center. Interesting. Last true relic of a bygone era, indeed. Absolutely. But in the words of REO Speedwagon, you can tune a piano, you can't tune a fish. I have a phrase of my own. You can horse around with Boston, but you can't stop whores around Boston. Oh, but um bum <laughs> So um, North Street by this time, you know, the late 1950s, was far too clean and obviously right adjacent to government center. So it couldn't really reclaim the displaced vaudevillians and prostitutes of Scully Square. Um, instead, they set their sights on a new promised land, a neighborhood just three-tenths of a mile south, which had easy access to the subway system with the Chinatown stop, which was then called the Essex stop, uh, on the corner. And it was this line that ran up uh, over to Charlestown, where the Navy Yard was. It always goes back to the raunchy sailors. Of course. Um, It was the ones that, that was the line they would use when they were docked. Um, But another benefit of it was it was on the north side of Chinatown, a place where the rents were low, Residents were lacking political power to kind of extricate seedier businesses. And so a new little red light district formed. And it was called Lower Washington Street initially uh, because it was on Lower Washington Street, um, meaning... Very creative. Yes, south of of Boylston, um, because that kind of cuts through the middle of it all. Some tried to actually refer to it as the Liberty Tree neighborhood, um, which doesn't really aptly work. Um, Liberty Tree is a famed Boston story of an 18th century tree that the revolutionaries of the day would gather around uh, to rally against the loyalists, and then the loyalists came and cut the tree down. But that's where it stood back in those days. It's kind of like the Auburn-Alabama thing. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And, uh, in fact, the fun thing about the Liberty Tree neighborhood name uh, is on the corner— uh, I just noticed this from observation. Above the Dunkin' Donuts and the Chinatown stop, you can actually still see a very, very old building uh, with a century-old shield of arms with the maybe multi-century-old. I don't know how old the building is, but it's it's still got the Liberty Tree carved into it, and it says Liberty Tree on it. So that's kind of fun. Interesting. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Um, so for those reasons, the location was perfect, but it was also perfect because it was one block east of the actual legitimate theater district on Tremont and Boylston. 
Um, and so it kind of became a modern renaissance of nudie pictures, peep shows, prostitution, uh, sexually transmitted diseases, bathhouses, drug dealers, pipers, violent fiddlers. crimes, pipers, fiddlers, and of course, adult bookstores for the intellectual variety. Absolutely. Uh, and so by the mid sixties, this was thriving. And, uh, by the mid sixties, the first, uh, chaste white woman finally wandered into Chinatown and discovered the brain trust. Uh, and this woman, Jean Cole happened to work for the Boston daily record now known as the Boston Herald. Um, uh-huh. and she decided to expose the crude neighborhood to the world in a series of exposés that became popular both in Boston and nationally. Uh, and in one of these exposés, um, she interviewed a military police officer who happened to be in the neighborhood. My money is that he was in the Navy. Um, and the MP compared the neighborhood to a combat zone. And since that's a little uh-huh. bit little bit more grabby than Lower Washington Street, uh, Miss yes. Cole decided to title her series The Combat Zone. And just like the stories themselves, the title caught fire and Lower washington street was was non-existent it was now the combat zone and so clubs like the silver dollar where lenny bruce would perform and also uh, people like irma the body would perform uh, they came and went but the theme was kind of always the same in the neighborhood Uh, the most iconic club perhaps was the naked eye cabaret which was famous for having a neon sign that had an eye superimposed over a woman's spread legs and oh, man. yes, uh, it kind of flourished there uh, on Washington Street from Boylston down to um, Neyland, which is the next major cut through street. And there was also a one uh, one way alley adjacent to it that kind of cuts between um, Tremont and Washington. It's called LaGrange Street, which the window to the very apartment, which I now sit in, faces Uh okay. And by the 1970s, this alley had garnered national attention uh, for the streetwalkers who would um, linger about within it and all the strip clubs that lined it. In fact, one article um, in the Wall Street Journal featured LaGrange Street and the combat zone um, overall and referred to it as a sexual Disneyland. Kind of fun. (laughs) True. I'm sure Walt would love that. Yes. Um, you know, but for all of the perceived depravity amongst the many wasps of Boston, uh, the gay community was able to find a public place where they were not discriminated against. Um, and due to the concentration of both gay people and neon, it was also nicknamed the Gay Times Square. Kind of fun. Oh, man. That's funny. Uh, it, and in addition to that, the other people who were kind of undergoing some flack at the time were the comedians. Uh, there were strict laws starting from that temperance movement from the 20s to 70s that stuck around around the idea of obscenity. Um, and that was one reason why a lot of the times the comedy scene was adjacent or intertwined with the red light scene in all major cities. Um, sure. I know this is true in Milwaukee, and I know it's true out here. Um, and that's one reason Bruce was at the Silver Dollar. Another was that as a young man, he was in the Navy. So, of course, he had to stop by. Um, in the blood. Right. Uh, Jay Leno actually got his start in stand-up at the 2 o'clock, which was the club that replaced the Silver Dollar in the combat zone once it closed. Um, and not to be outdone, 
Chesty Morgan, a Polish orphan <laughs> whose parents died in the Holocaust, uh, who ended up having an all-natural 73-inch bosom, also got her start performing in the combat zone. Pretty impressive. Um, I decided uh, her, her act her, or her chest or what was that she got her start oh. there and that Jay Leno got her start there. I, wow, I was speaking crazy. more about the combat zone being impressive, not her. Um, I looked into her. She she grew up in Warsaw uh, and then she she was an orphan and then she ended up in a kibbutz, which is like um, an Israeli commune where they yep, all yep. grow their own food. It's kind of fun. Um, yep. And then she married. Uh, an American man and moved to New York and he was killed in a robbery, which is why she ended up becoming a stripper. Um, and she's actually in the 1988 edition of Guinness movie facts and feats with her bust measurement being the largest on record for a film star. Wow. Yes. She was in two films, deadly weapons and double agent 73, which she starred in. Uh, and then she very, ended up very, very subtle and creative title. Yes, and then she ended up marrying a a second man, Dick Stello, who was an umpire in the National League of Baseball. Uh, I I've heard his name, so yes. I'm familiar. With, I did, that's funny. Okay, but she is still around. She's currently 84. She's retired in Tampa, per an article in the Tampa Bay Times, uh, in which she was interviewed while retarring her own roof. So, very resourceful woman. And Jay Leno also went on to do other things. Yes, he did. Um, so, you know, the, the puritanical overlords, they were kind of frothing at the mouth to stamp out the combat zone as they had at Scully Square and Ann Street before it. Uh, but public, public perception was kind of beginning to accept the fate that you, you can't get rid of this element entirely. Uh, sure. So they decided to focus in on that failed federal strategy for communism, containment. Uh, and they decided that the best way to handle the situation was to allow the district to remain with a few caveats, right? Sure. The containment strategy was spearheaded by a state representative named Barney Frank, who introduced... Oh, yes. yes. He introduced a bill to define a specific red light district which would legalize sex-for-hire businesses as long as they stayed within a geographic region. Now, he wow. proposed moving that region to the financial district, go figure. <laughs> um, but that didn't take off. Uh, I and, wonder why. And instead, uh, the Boston Redevelopment Authority, who handles all the zoning for Boston, kind of picked up where the bill left off, and they designated the, the current region where I live and where the combat zone was, they designated as the official adult entertainment district in the city of Boston, which. So hold on a second. I I, I with I want to I want to find out if there's video or audio of that meeting, of that specific committee meeting, and and someone trying to advocate for, for uh, these laws and why these laws make sense. I there's got to be transcripts. We got to find those. All right. Well, uh, we'll have to do a follow up. Um, but when they got their zoning as the official adult entertainment district, uh, they were exempt from the new ban in Boston on flashing neon signs. Again, oh, wow. Puritanical overlords hard at work out here. Yes. Um, yes. because that was the evil part that they could control the flashing neon signs. Um, so this designation of an official zone for adult entertainment was actually the first in America to ever do so. 
So if if this were to happen today, that would be like sponsored by somebody. So and so's uh, adult entertainment section, you know, for sure, right? Probably, yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, the mayor at the time, Kevin White, he also liked the idea of keeping the combat zone around but contained. Um, and in fact, in 1975, he went down there himself into the combat zone uh, for research purposes only. Yes, unannounced to check it out for himself. Uh, but I guess he brought reporters along. Um, and as he walked down LaGrange Street, once again, famous for his streetwalkers, he was actually propositioned for what we'll call a bit of business. Um, and he refused the business, and the the quote that they pulled was, uh, he replied, thank you, but I'm too old. Too old for what? Too old for the streetwalkers, apparently. Because a police raid that same year led to the arrest of 97 girls under the age of 17 along LaGrange and Washington Street for prostitution. Wow. Yeah, so it was wild. I mean... Stuff was happening that nobody was was taking care of at all. Um, there were some questions whether or not maybe the the police were being paid off by uh, mafia forces to look away, but that seems like the common narrative in every major city. So right. um, I'd be inclined to say that it's probably more just a sheer incompetence, a fear of of wanting to contain things there was a lot of violent crime and how do you tamp down on it so instead of doing anything you did nothing was kind of the situation plus it was now the official adult entertainment district um but you know if you fast forward to today i pay ridiculous amounts of money and rent for a chance to live in this very combat zone though (laughs) i didn't know it as that um and i collated most of my research on this topic uh, around the corner at jaho coffee which is on the corner of Washington and LaGrange, right? And there were no streetwalkers. So <laughs> you could assume something happened. Uh, can you yes. guess what happened? Um, I, the Boston Celtics won the world championship in basketball, and because they were trying to run a parade through that area and it was causing problems, they decided to clean it up. That's my guess. Way off. Um, All right. The Charlestown Navy Yard closed in 1975. I mean, how are you going to have a profitable peep show if there's no Navy Yard anywhere close to the city? Yeah. Right? They couldn't. Um, And then you combine that with an incident more along the lines of what you're talking about. Um, In 1976, a Harvard football player named Andrew Puapolo and his teammate Charlie Kay uh, they happened to be in the combat zone for some reason. And Kay was approached by a prostitute uh, who reached into the open of the window of the car that they were both sitting in and made an advance. Apparently, it was unwelcome. And Puapolo was apparently angered at the advance on his teammate. So he got out of the car and attempted to chase the prostitute down, but was stopped by three men, um, perhaps uh, people who were managing the streetwalkers, One of them stabbed him, and this ultimately led to his death, right? So Harvard football player killed in red light district has a bad bad ring to it. And uh, the public soured on the idea of containment. So um, he kind of got memorialized and, and became the... The spear, the the spearhead, the I want to say the figurehead. There it is, um, of the movement to kind of shut it down. And there's actually there's still memorials to Poapolo throughout Boston today. One of them is a really large park 
um, with baseball, basketball, tennis, bocce ball courts, uh, public park on the north end of the north end. I walked past it many times. I actually just walked up there today to check it out now that I know who Andrew Puapolo is. And there's, I'm looking forward to myself. Yeah, there's an engraved dedication to him near the front of the park that kind of makes him sound more like a fallen soldier, but it it is a sweet kind of um, memorial. I took a photo of it. It says, Athlete, scholar, and friend, happy are those who dream dreams and are willing to sacrifice to make them come true. So he's he's kind of the reason that uh, they decided action needed to be taken. You combine that with the AIDS outbreak that kind of disproportionately affects sex workers, of course. Um, The rise of home video, and then the late 90s, the rise of internet pornography, and the closing of the Navy Yard. You just didn't really have the same demand for a red light district. And increased police presence, preventing prostitution, uh, caused it to find itself another neighborhood in in Dorchester. So... (laughs) It's a tale as old as time when the Navy leaves. Uh, it's time to start tearing buildings down. And, sure. And that's what they did with the Silver Dollar, the Pilgrim Theater, the Naked Eye Cabaret, countless other businesses, replacing them with high-rise apartments that people now podcast out of. Kind of fun. <laughs> um, so so what was the official end date then? Was, was uh, you in, the, in the 90s? What? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to give it a specific end date uh, because... Because um, you're not a Millerite? Well, no, because two relics of the adult entertainment district still exist. Centerfolds and the Glass Slipper, two strip clubs on LaGrange Street, which I have yet to stop in, but they're there. Um, and they're open. So everything else shuttered. And like I said, prostitution moved to Dorchester basically by 2000. But um, wow. that's kind of the the end of the road for a centralized red light district. And and the famous performers, you know, Chesty Morgan, and she moved to Tampa. Princess Cheyenne, the exotic dancer. Sylvia Sidney, Boston's most infamous drag queen. And Jay Leno all moved on to other things. Um, but it lives on in other ways, too, right? Uh, references in The Departed, in Cheers, yes. the song yep. Lightning Strikes by Aerosmith. Um, yep. But the actual nostalgic Disneyland... Uh, sexual Disneyland <laughs> exists no more. Uh, <laughs> the Puritans won, as they always do, and that is the history of the red light districts of Boston. That is funny. So, so you mentioned Cheers, and so the the bar uh, that Cheers is is based off of is is the Bullfinch. And so, where is that compared to the Combat Zone? Is that part of that that area? It's just um a. A diagonal walk across Boston Common. So I live sure. in the combat zone and the Boylston Street subway stops on the corner. If I took the diagonal path that cuts directly through Boston Common, I would run straight into the Cheers bar. And in two gotcha. two episodes of Cheers, they go to the combat zone. Yes, yes. Um, uh, and to kind of tie the whole thing off as a final thought, if mom hadn't said yes when you made those plates for her and married you, and if she hadn't become for, a math teacher, for ending it this way. Yes, if she hadn't become a math teacher, and hadn't given birth to me, I wouldn't have watched Gilmore Girls together with her every day on ABC Family at 4 p.m. when we both got home from school. I wouldn't have fallen in love with Amy Sherman Palladino's kind of reference-rich writing style. Wouldn't have known to watch her next project, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I wouldn't have been drawn to her characterization of Lenny Bruce in the show. Wouldn't have bought his autobiography. Wouldn't have read his reference to the silver dollar in Boston. 
And at the same time, I wouldn't have learned my love of math from mom, wouldn't have become an electrical engineer, wouldn't have taken a job as an engineer in Boston, and wouldn't have rented the apartment on directly in the combat zone, a block away from the place Bruce referenced, wouldn't have cared to look into his reference, wouldn't have been inspired by what I found to develop this podcast episode. So in a way, Boston's red light history, Lenny Bruce's life, mom's life, your life, my life, and frankly, all the lives that came before us have all been leading to this exact podcast episode, exactly <laughs> in this moment, about the club where Chesty Morgan and Jay Leno got their start. <laughs> Pretty neat, right? It's mind-blowing. Yeah, it's, um, it's significant, for sure. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. I love it. That uh, is, that's a great history. That's, that's the kind of history that both you and I really love. I mean, you know, obviously we love world history and things of that nature, but this is a kind of, I'll call it quirky history. Yeah. Uh, th that is super fun to investigate and frankly to learn about. I mean, just from hearing all of this, I absolutely want to go and investigate all of these different places. And, and I think your discovery of, of the mosaic in the subway stop for uh, Scully Square is incredible because like you said, how many millions of people each year go up and down that little uh, area and have exactly zero idea of really the, the history. history of that. Yeah. That was where people, you know. James Wilkes Booth, John, sorry, James, John Wilkes Booth probably stood there, maybe went up and down those stairs. Who knows? That's in, actually, that's he'd have been dead, but he stood above it above the right above yeah. the subway station <laughs> just incredible though i just am yeah that's cool that's the kind of stuff that i love and that's part of the reason why you know when you think about the history of of any country uh but i'm thinking about the united states here you know when you have a a, a town that's been established for a couple hundred years you you get those kind of quirky uh stories that that really kind of enrich uh the, the city itself but you know, kind of bring to you a, a different type of knowledge. And, and that's, I love it. It's great. Yeah. So like I said, I didn't think I could do the history of the whole of Boston, but just by focusing in on that one lens, look at how much we got to learn about how the city developed as a whole. It's kind of fun. And Jay Leno. And Jay Leno and Chesty Morgan and, and Irma, Irma the, the body. body. Yes. Uh, what do you say we move on to this week in media? I think that's a great idea. Great. Okay, Dad, uh, that was a, an unwieldy topic, but we made it through. How about this week in media? Hey, so I checked out a movie, uh, an Adam Sandler movie. He has a deal with Netflix that he does a bunch of movies with, and the one he released this week on Wednesday was a movie called uh, Hustle. And uh, I knew it was coming out, and I had not a ton of knowledge about it. What got me to watch it was you. You had uh, kind of texted or group messaged uh, a group that both of us are in and said, hey, is anyone watching this? And I knew that it was coming out and I started to watch it and uh, it, it is definitely not Oscar worthy material, but no. it was absolutely, <laughs> it was absolutely a fun, fun, fun watch. You know, I'm hot and cold in Adam Sandler. I like some of the things he done, he's done and some of the things I don't like at all. But he, I thought he was really good in this movie. But the fun piece of this was there's 25 NBA players who decided they were going to give their time and talents, I'm sure they got paid, I have no idea how or what, to this movie. 
and it was a blast. I just, I, I, I had fun with it. It was, I, I wouldn't call it a comedy because it wasn't necessarily a comedy. It no. was a, a drama was, with yeah, some like a feel, elements, like a feel right? good comedy. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like it, it wasn't was, a comedy. It was like a feel good drama, right. I guess. I don't yeah. know. It, yeah. And, and it was a sports story and, right. and I absolutely loved it. Uh, the gentleman who was uh, the lead character along with, with uh, Adam Sandler is a, an NBA player. And uh, he used to play for the Timberwolves, played for the Celtics, played for a lot of different teams. Um, but so he was able to handle the, the basketball piece of it. And I thought he actually carried himself pretty well from a, an acting perspective. The guy, though, in my mind, that's Anthony Edwards. Oh, Ant. Oh, I was, knew you were going to say that. He was, oh, he was so good. I couldn't believe how well he could act. He's got a career oh. when he retires in 20 he, years. He he's does. got a second career as a movie star because, man. Space Jam 3. Yeah, well, he's got the look. He's got the act. I mean, he's got it all. It, it's. I mean, it's really, I was so impressed. Yes. yes. He, and he was great. He was the perfect foil. I knew awesome. you were going to say that. Yeah, and it, it's. Uh, it's like... I wouldn't watch it if I weren't a basketball fan because right, most right. of the fun in the movie comes from recognizing everybody. Uh, yes. And the plot kind of just plays a secondary role to that. But yes, definitely Absolutely. a fun watch. I'm not sure that it would ever be back in my rotation, but it was worth it to see it once, you know? For sure. Um, Thoroughly enjoyed it. How about yourself, Jordy? Would, uh, what about you for uh, this week, you media? Yeah, so I was... Uh, you know, I, for the podcast episodes, I try to just take inspiration from what is ever directly around me. Um, sure. You know, like whatever I can see. So as I was sitting on that bench before I read the reference, I was like, oh, maybe we should do an episode on messenger pigeons because I was surrounded by pigeons. Um, <laughs> and I want to know how oh. that worked. But sure. one thing I like to do is try and give us a little bit uh, topics that I feel like haven't been beat to death or done better than we could do it. Uh, so I check a few different podcasts to see if they've done an episode on on whatever topic I'm looking into. Sure. And one I look at is Stuff You Should Know, yep. um, which has been around since the dawn of man. Uh, but yes, they do a really has. good job explaining things. And uh, they have an episode on all the different types of pigeons. And people should listen to it. It's 40 minutes. And it is it's it's lovely. You get to learn about how carrier pigeons work and the fact that mike tyson raises them himself um so yeah definitely listen to that it's kind of kind of cool <laughs> that's cool I, I do like that podcast i catch uh episodes here and there of that and i they, i think they do a really great job so i will have to uh, uh go find that specific episode and check it out yeah check it out pigeons All right, Dad, what's something you learned this week? So the thing that I learned this week was how Finland handles law-breaking uh, for certain offenses. So f from my perspective, I think about how we handle things. So you know, if we are caught speeding or, or doing some type of a, a traffic violation uh, or, or shoplifting, we get a certain fine, right? So maybe it's 200 bucks for speeding or $500 for for uh for shoplifting in yeah. finland they don't do it that way do you have do you know how they do it no i don't they do it based on what your income is so ah. if they pull you if they pull you over for speeding one of the things that they do is they look up your information in the federal taxpayer database to figure out what your income is 
They pull, they look at the the chart and say, oh, you made uh, X thousands of dollars. Your yeah. fine is this. I, and I, so, I think and, that's more ethical. That's great. It, well, it, it's, you know, the, the people who can, I guess, quote unquote, afford to break the law are, are, are fine. So an example, I thought I'd give you a, is a, an example. So there's a, a famous um, uh, Finnish uh, NHL player. His name is Timu Solani. He um, was speeding and he was fined $39,000 for speeding. Wow. That's insane. So See, I thought it was... I, I thought it was crazy, and I think, like you said, I think it's it's a lot more ethical. Yeah, so I've talked to you about that um, before, about how on the road I feel like now, like different from when I was a kid with no job, or like I had a job but didn't pay very well in high school, right? And sure. I wasn't driving. In college, I had a job that paid even worse than the job in high school, and I was driving, and I would not want to go like more than you know four miles per hour over the speed limit even when there wasn't much of a risk of an incident or anything because i didn't want to get pulled over by a cop because i was afraid of having to pay a ticket fine like i didn't want to deal with that and now um now that i have like a higher paying job not speeding specifically but like parking tickets like i don't fret over them like in milwaukee I would park on the street risking the thought of getting a ticket because if I didn't get one, it would be cheaper than going in the in the like garage anyway, right? right. Um, and I was like, ah, well, like I'll be able to handle it. So, I, you know, it's just people, not everybody has that. Some people have lower incomes. Some people have no incomes. Um, but we all get fined the same here. Um, and that just is a more of a rich get richer kind of thing where it's a larger proportion of your income. So that's cool that Finland does it that way. So I was going to have one little addendum to it. This was tried in the United States back in 1988. And one of the cities that tried to do this was Milwaukee. Really? And it, it didn't catch on. Just uh, They just the felt rich, that it wasn't. Rich people didn't like it. And so they got the <laughs> lawmakers to change it. Yeah, sure. That's the moral of the story. Uh, it, that's not what happened, but I could see where it was. It just, for some reason, uh, it just got to be a hassle in terms of trying to look up people's income. I see. Got it. Sure. We'll, we'll go with that cover story. <laughs> uh, I learned this week that until 1850, shoes were, uh, pairs of shoes were not um, fit to specific feet. What? Like you would get two shoes and they would, you wouldn't have a left shoe and a right shoe. You would have two identical shoes and it didn't come into fashion until 1850 to make shoes that were fitted to left and right feet. Interesting. Yeah. Kind of just fun little fact. That's just kind of. I guess it'd be like boot, you know, like cowboy boots. Cowboy boots aren't left and right. Right. Yeah. You can fit them on either foot. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but now, obviously, that's a huge thing with the way that we form fit our shoes. Um, Absolutely. But the one that I think about is like Jesus's Birkenstocks, because he definitely wore Birks. Yeah, yeah um, of course he did. Would have just been like, you know, almost rectangular in a way, or they would have been like, boxy. Uh, yeah, very boxy because they're not. They would have been cut to his left and right foot. Kind of interesting to think about. Yes, crazy. Uh, 
Yes. Sorry, I did that again. I was turning off the recording. Sure. Go again. Hey, Jordy. So, uh, what do you have for this week in chess? One more time. Sorry. Hey, Jordy. What do you have for this week in chess? Ah, uh, this week in chess, Magnus Carlsen won the fourth consecutive Norway chess event. Wow. Uh, which is big. He's a Norwegian, so it always feels good for him to take that one home um, yes. and assert his dominance over all the other top-level GMs, just reminding everybody that there's no hope of stopping him. <laughs> and in that vein, the candidates tournament to determine who will be forced to face him uh, in the next World Championship match uh, start this week. So go Hikaru, good luck in the event, and good luck to all all eight competitors the force be with you. How about you, Dad? This week in Brian. <laughs> so just continuing my run streak. I started it last week. I, I still have it going. So we're chugging towards that 30 days. It's been uh, it's been good so far. So I'm looking to continue that. Awesome. Well, thanks for potting with me. Uh, our intro song is You and I by Ted Heineshevitz. Uh, we will see you guys next week. Take us out, Ted. Together, you and I, you and I.